If you have Philippians open, I want you to notice something. I've been mentioning every week that we do Philippians that this is quite literally the center of the letter. It is central in the sense that it's the most important passage, but it's also central in two other ways. Literally, it's kind of halfway through the letter, but also even more importantly, everything that came before it was really been preparing for this. And everything we do over the next month and a half, we finish Philippians before Christmas, Lord willing, is it, blowing out of this. This is the heartbeat of the letter. And it's interesting, you could read Philippians a bunch of times and not necessarily notice this. In Philippians, Paul wrote 13 letters or 13 letters described in his name in the New Testament. And in Philippians, he emphasizes when he mentions the gospel. One little word summed up what the Christian faith is about more frequently in Philippians, proportionately, than in any other letter. And yet, 99% of the time in Philippians, when he mentions the gospel, he just assumes you know what it is. He doesn't flesh it out. And so, if I'm going back to chapter one, I want you to note the beginning of the letter. He says in verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance, always in every prayer, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership, your fellowship, your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse 7, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart that you are all participants with me of God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and comprehension of the gospel. Over and over, about 20 times in four short chapters, he mentions the gospel. And yet, apart from our passage today, he never really fleshes out what it is. I think Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a great passage. We've been encouraged from up here in emails. I would encourage you, never uh, a requirement, I'm not going to be a legalist, but I would encourage you to consider memorizing Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It is one of the four or five greatest summaries of what the gospel is in the New Testament. It sums up what the good news of the Christian faith is, and this is the passage where Paul gets into it. And it just to connect the dots to how everything in Philippians so far leads into the rest of the next month and a half, we'll just be tracing the echoes and tracing the, the aftershocks of this story of Jesus and the rest of the letter. But in our first passage, which we did maybe about a month ago, chapter 1, 1 to 11, we talk about that there's these three fruits that Paul mentions that the gospel brings. It brings joy in the midst of suffering. It brings um, discernment of what really matters in life. And it brings not a, a sense of being a spectator, as we just admire what God did in Jesus long ago, but it tells us to be participant. We participate in the grace of God. And today's passage really, if you want to understand how Paul could be filled with joy when he had experienced something that most of us would be despairing if we had had that happen to us, chapter 2, 5 to 11 is a secret. If you want to know how Paul discerns what really matters and what doesn't really matter, it's because he uses chapter 2, 5 to 11 as the litmus test for that. If you want to know what he's calling us to participate in, to not just be spectators on the sidelines, but be in there to be involved in what God is doing in the world, he wants us to participate and to be involved in what we see in the story of Jesus. In the second section, verse 12 to 26, he said that whatever is going on in my life, my ambition, my great driving desire is that the gospel would be advanced. And that doesn't mean that Christians take over politically. It doesn't mean that, that we go out there and we take up arms and support what people believe. It means that proclaiming the story and seeing other people see that it's true and, and respond to it and live their lives in light of it is the driving desire that animated Paul, advancing the reality 
It started 2,000 years ago when Jesus did this. It's called thriving reality. And then two weeks ago, we looked at in verse 27, it's arguably in chapter one, it's arguably the thesis statement of the letter. This is what Paul wants to happen because he wrote this letter to this church. I only want your manner of life to be worthy the gospel of Christ. Two weeks ago, we talked about how there's actually a verb there that's hard to translate. It's not actually walk or live, but it's actually be a citizen. Be a citizen of God's kingdom who is worthy of the gospel. And whatever it means to be worthy of the gospel, you need to grasp what chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 is saying. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to spend a few minutes just walking us through what exactly is Paul saying here about the gospel to the grasp of the basic flow. Then I'm just going to draw out, I've been so aware this week, I could do eight sermons just on this passage, and I got to somehow this 35 minutes kind of sum up. And so I'm just going to emphasize, I'm going to draw out four primary things. I could draw out 40, but I'm just going to draw out four today. And, and let me say this as I get started. Um, not only is this a passage that, that I feel so inadequate to, to spend a few minutes just trying to, to communicate to us, but I suspect that perhaps there's even a connection here in God's strange providence. This doesn't always happen, um, but in the last, I would say, two weeks, for some reason, the vast majority of my conversations with people in this church and with people outside of the church, all our students, friends, have been filled with conversations about how overwhelmed and in pain, a lot of people are how hard this season of life is. And I find that a privilege, but as a pastor, I, I don't feel overwhelmed by that. I don't um, resent that. I'm not looking for people to always be happy. Anyway, I love when people are real. But when I have conversation, 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 where suffering and depression and frustration and a sense of God is not showing up in my life or there, I feel so overwhelmingly hopeless. Feel so overwhelmingly helpless because I'm always aware that on the one hand I have this yearning to be able to almost metaphorically like reach into their life and take the pain away and put something good there instead, and I just cannot do that. And all I can do is pray and be present and hope that God shows up. And and I think for me this is a passage that in seasons of life like this, and it's not all of you right now, just a little snapshot. But when there are hard seasons of life, this is a passage that I encourage you to come to a lot. I'm going to share this, and then we're going to get into the exegesis and, and the interpretation of this passage. There is a great scene at the very end of the Return of the King, I think, article, where Sam and Frodo are on the hill, the mountain going up to Mordor, and it is the lowest point for both of them. They are filled with depression. They are filled with despair. It looks like they cannot get it done. Even if they do, there's not going to be a return journey. And there's this, and you probably know it from the movies or have read the book, there is this just profound darkness that hangs over both of them. And it, it can't come out in the movie, but in the book, it's maybe my single favorite scene. And it's a, it's a motif that shows up a lot in the books. Arguably, you could make a pretty good argument that Samwise Gamgee is the hero of Lord of the Rings. That he's the central character or the most significant one. And one thing that Samwise Gamgee is always doing is when he's filled with depression, he often notices a star up in the heavens. And there's a scene at the very end where Sam, Frodo is basically cast out, he's given up, and Sam just is at the end of his rope. And it says this, far above the night sky was still dim and pale and dark. And there, keeping among the cloud rack above a dark for uh, a dark tour high above in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of this forsaken land that he's in and hope returned it. Why? Because like a shaft, 
clear and cold, the thought suddenly came to him and pierced him that in the end, shadow was only a small and passing thing, and that there is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And to me, this is the North Star for us as Christians. When there are that moments where the shadow and the darkness feel like they're the main thing in the world, the main thing in our story, this is a moment where we can see the clouds. We can see the star behind the clouds. And I want us to look at this in terms of what it can show us. About how we can have hope and how we can have joy even when so much of the world is broken. So let's look at verses 5 through 11. I'm just going to make a couple of comments about it. Um, maybe we'll do a, a sermon discussion about this one in the near future because there's so much to talk about here in another time outside of Sunday morning. Um, but I'll just mention a couple of things about the passage and then we're going to draw out a couple of communications. The first thing is I want you to notice that there's very, very clearly two halves to this passage verses six through eight and verses nine through 11. There's a pattern. And we heard this pattern in Psalm 22. We heard this pattern in Isaiah 53. The first half, verses 6 through 8, is about the suffering of Jesus, or maybe better, the humiliation of Jesus. And the second half, verses 9 to 11, is about the vindication or the exaltation of Jesus. There is an up, down, up trajectory in this passage. He starts as high as anybody can start. He goes lower than anybody else has ever gone, and then he ends up high again. And so humiliation and exaltation. On the other hand, and this is the single most important thing about this passage, Paul is not writing this. Some of the most profound things that have ever been written about Jesus because he's a philosopher or because he wants to be able to pass the theology test or because he's just interested in abstract speculation. Verse 5 controls everything in this passage. And it says this, and it's one of the most important words in Philippians. Have this mindset have this attitude. The idea is not cognitive beliefs, not ideology. The idea is your attitude, your posture, the way you're disposed in the world. Have this attitude or this mindset among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's what the next six verses are about. This is the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And the whole point is so that we would have that mindset too that we would participate in that, that that would be our posture, that that would be our attitude in the world. Now, starting in, it's interesting, there's a lot of difficult, specific details in this passage, but the overall flow is so clear. We need to notice that in verse 6, um, at the very beginning, it mentions Jesus being in the form of two different realities. In verse 6, it said that the beginning of Jesus' story is that he was in the form of God. Now, there's a transition that takes place in this first half, and it tells us that, in nonetheless, he emptied himself, verse 7, and he took on the form of a servant, a figure in Isaiah 53. Now, it's very, very clear, if you read it carefully, Jesus did not lose the form of God and become a human being. Instead, he remains in the form of God, but he also comes into the form of a human being. This is a central passage, John 1, which uh, which was just read a few minutes ago, also said this, that the word was with God, and the word was God, the word became flesh. But he's always been there, he's always been one with the Father, and yet he also became a human being. This is what Christians often call the incarnation. In just a couple of months, I know you're not thinking about this right now because it implies cold weather, we're going to go into Advent end of November, and Advent is a season leading up to Christmas that is all about incarnation. 2,000 years ago, one who was in the form of God also came in the form of a human being. And so there's a transition here in which Jesus is fully God, 
fully human at the same time. A lot of the great errors, if you want to say heresies in church history, are people who are trying to evacuate the mystery and the tension of that claim that in Jesus we see one who's fully God, 100% God, and fully 100% human. He's not 50% God, 50% human. He's not 100% God, he only seems to be a human being, which is what many Christians, I think, fundamentally or kind of functionally think today. There's a line that I often point out. We're going to sing it pretty soon in Advent. It's a great hymn overall. It's in a way in a manger. It's got one of the great, awful lines in, in Christian hymnal history where the little Lord Jesus asleep in the, in the manger, no crying he makes. It looks like he's a human baby. But he's not. He never even cried. He never pooped his pants. He never, you know, did this. He never did this. He never had pimples on his face. He was never awkward. We often, I think, shy away from the full humanity of Jesus. And we think that he's fully God. And in many Christians, when we read the gospel, we think this this is God in the flesh. He's not really a human. He just looks like this. But the claim of the Christian faith is not only that the Son of God, the eternal begotten Son of God, became a human being. You know, he identified with us and became one of us, but he remains a human being forever. He remains a human being forever. But it's also not true that he's really human, but he's just kind of inspired. That's what we mean when we call him God. He's just kind of really aware in his consciousness. God is fully God and he's fully human. Now, some of the big debates are in verse six, even though he was in the form of God, what does this mean? He did not count equality with God if you read four different English translations, you're going to see four very different takes on that last phrase. He did not consider equality with God, which is clearly basically synonymous with he's in the form of God. This is a starting point, really high up, but he doesn't consider it a thing that he grasped. That's all one word in the original, and it refers to essentially somebody's attitude towards a privilege that they already possess. And it's the opposite of the attitude in verse 3 that Paul prohibits us from it. And he warns us away from it. Do nothing, he says in verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's just fleshing it up. Jesus did not look at his oneness with God, at the ultimate privilege that anyone could have in the universe, to be in the form of God. And he did not consider that as something to be used for his own benefit. As something that is drained to the drive for himself, but he um, was willing to put it aside and put the interests of others in front of his own. He did not hold on to it, he did not cling to it. He wasn't clingy and needy with respect to it, but he used it for the advantage of others. He didn't exploit it for his own sake. And then verse 7 gets the metaphor. Instead of that, he emptied himself. By the way, this is one of the many places where we see that I think Paul is pretty clearly thinking, among other things, of Isaiah 53 in this passage. Jesus became a servant. He was humiliated. And then he was exalted. In Isaiah 53, at the end, when Dan read it, we're told that the servant of the Lord, in his humiliation, poured himself out unto death. Both of which he emptied himself and became obedient unto death. That's part of the whole description of Jesus here. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and the, the servant of the Lord. By the way, in verse 7, when it says he emptied himself, I want to say two things about this. Now we'll just draw out some implications of this passage. There is a huge debate, which you don't need to know about unless you're curious about it. We'll talk about it another time. In church history, of what exactly did Jesus empty himself of? 
Did he empty himself of his glory? Did he empty himself of being omniscient and, and omnipresent and omnipowerful? What did he empty himself of? And it's almost certainly to read a metaphor literally. The point is not that Jesus emptied himself like you empty a water bottle out on the ground. Like what came out when he emptied himself? The point is that he made himself nothing and self was not at the center of what he did, that he emptied himself of any kind of selfishness, any kind of, I'm at the center, in my opinion, for me, and instead he put the interests of others in front of himself, and he did that by becoming a human being, and not only a human being, a servant, a slave, and not only a servant, a slave, but one who became obedient to the point of death. That's the humiliation. It's the story of Jesus in a nutshell there. And in verse 9 starts with a really, really important word. It doesn't just say that God in the future or after that rescued Jesus and vindicated him. It says, therefore. So therefore, at the beginning of verse 9, that what comes next is not arbitrary, but there's some kind of causal connection. And when someone humbles himself for the sake of others, if you remember this in the story of Jesus, one of the things that Jesus says most often, he says it in different ways, is that those who humble themselves will be exalted, those who are last will become first. Those who are servants are actually the greatest. That is true of Jesus. That is also true, or it needs to be true for us as well. And so in the second half, verses 9 to 11, whatever the um, kind of specific details are, the idea is that Jesus starts out higher than anybody. Verse 6 away, he goes lower than anybody else. Sacred being being for the sake of serving others. And therefore, God highly exalts him to the name that is above every name, bestow that on him, so that, and by the way, here's another reason that I think you know Paul is thinking of Isaiah. In verse 10, when it says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, that also come from a passage very close to Isaiah 53. That comes from Isaiah 45. And so he's thinking about the servant of the Lord. This figure shows up throughout Isaiah 40 to 66 and what happened because of this servant's faithfulness and his humility. Just a couple of thoughts about verse 9 to 11 and then we'll move on. You could read it as if simply Jesus started high, he went really low, and then he went back up to where he was at the beginning. And there is a sense in which that's true, but there's another sense in which that misses something. When we're told that God gives Jesus after his birth, after his death, after his resurrection, the name that is above every name, there's an instinct that many Christians have. It's understandable, but I think it's a mistake to think that the name there is the name of God. And the reason that's a mistake is two reasons. One is we know Jesus already had that name. Jesus was already in the form of God. And two, you can't receive the name of God. You either have it or you don't. You're either in that category forever. You can't enter that category later on. When it says that he has received the name above every name, almost certainly what he's referring to is the last thing he says in verse 11, that Jesus Christ is now Lord. Lord overall. Which is a word that in the first century you use of Caesar. That is the human figure in the world who has all authority over everybody else in the universe, that Jesus, as a human being, has now been exalted to be Lord over all. There's a great line I often think of from an old Scottish preacher that at the heart of the gospel is the claim that now the dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. It's not just that Jesus now rules over everything because he did from the beginning. It's that he rules over everything as one of us. Rules over everything, one of us. I remember, and I'll, I'll get to this in a minute, 
Um, I remember when Barack Obama was elected president that one of the many responses there was how much enthusiasm and excitement, not to overplay it, many African Americans had of an African American has been elected to the presidency of the United States of America. In the last year, year and a half, an Asian American woman was elected the mayor of Boston. In the 1960s, John F. Kennedy became the first Catholic president of the United States. In every one of these moments, if you're in that category, you all of a sudden feel a sense of hope. You feel a sense of optimism because somebody who is like you and who knows what it's like to be you is now in a position where they can use their power. And that sense of solidarity all of a sudden becomes very significant. The claim is not just that Jesus came down and went back up, but that he came down as a human and he went back up as a human for the sake of us. One of the great lines in the Nicene Creed is that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And that's what this passage is about, this story. And this is why Paul can have such joy even as he's sitting in prison. So what I want to do, and there's so much else we can talk about in this specific passage, but the, the flow of the passage is very simple, very basic. I want to just mention very briefly in each of these four things that I would encourage you to think about, to, to notice, and to, and to consider if this is true. This story goes that the eternal Son of God in the form of God, equal with God, did not use his equality with God for his own sake. He didn't look at us having ruined our lives and fallen into a pit and said, that's on them. I'm up here and I'm comfortable. But he gave it up. He emptied himself and put our interests in front of his own and he humil was humiliated beyond anybody else's possible um, horror story. And then he was exalted again. What difference does that make? And the first thing I want to all four of these, if only for the sake of memory, all four things are keywords. And the first word is this perspective. And I mentioned this earlier, I've had a lot of hard conversations recently where when you are depressed, when objectively everything seems to be going wrong, it is really, really hard to have perspective. It's really hard not to conclude that my experience here and now just is the nature of reality. And like Sam at the end of the Lord of the Rings, here's a star that comes out from behind the clouds. And here are a couple of things I often think about, not just in this passage, but especially in a passage like this, that I would encourage you to make sure you have on your radar, to make sure that these are stars that you can look at. And the first is, let me quote this from C.S. Lewis, set the beginning of the book, and if you want to look at it, that this is the one who, in the form of God, even before he became human, was already disposed to put the interests of others in front of his own and to give himself away and sacrifice and self-giving love for the sake of others. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only underneath all of creation, but of all being, all existence. For the eternal word also gives himself in sacrifice, and that not only on Calvary, for when Jesus was crucified, he was just doing in the wild weather of his outlying provinces that which he had already done at home in glory and gladness. From before the foundation of the world, he surrenders begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. And as the Son glorifies the Father, so also the Father glorifies the Son. There is joy in the dance, but it does not exist for the sake of joy. It doesn't even exist for the sake of good or of love. It is love himself and good himself, and therefore happy. It does not exist for us, but we for it. Now, that's a really fancy passage. Here is my take on what T.S. Lewis is saying. 
anything you point at in your experience or in history, the fact that you were born, the fact that you have the personality or the characteristics of your life, or the personality that you do, or anything in history before you have anything that you know, nobody's going to anything create reality and say that's there and that's the way it is because and point to something else. I can say I was born because my parents were. I can say that that I have the personality I do because of certain experiences I've had because God created me the way I did. We can say Jesus became a human being. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross because of sin, because he loved us. You can say because, because, because. You can say the United States exists the way it does right now because of all these other things in the past. But at some point, you run into something where there's no because behind it. Where there's no because intermediate. And this is, I think, for, for many people, one of the hardest, most mind-boggling things to believe in God, that when a little child says, yeah, if you make God, you immediately know that you're running into something that's unlike other things. But it's not just that before anything else there's God, it's that before anything else, the God who is there is, and C.S. Lewis quotes this here from the Gospel of John, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And there is no because behind that. There is no cause behind that. There is no moment. There is no incremental piece of data that led to that. That just is reality. And so the most basic aspect of reality is a God who is oriented towards the other in love and in delight and in service. That that is the ultimate reality underneath and prior to and before anything else. Anything that comes after yeah. that seems to cloud that, that seems to make that part of belief, nonetheless doesn't change. Yeah. That is what is underneath everything else. It also is good to remember from perspective that this God in history took on flesh, sacrificed himself, and came down for us and for our salvation. That is objectively true. And this is the center of history. By the way, maybe you noticed it. Maybe you've asked yourself a question about this. In verse 10, we're told that the name of Jesus, which is above every other name, is the name that every knee will bow to, that every tongue will confess. And then we're given three categories of creatures of existence that will bow to Jesus, bow the knee to Jesus, but confess that Jesus is Lord. And we're told it's those in heaven, so angelic beings and spiritual beings, it's those on earth, us, and then it's those who are under the earth. And that is almost certainly a reference, not to there's, you know, like cavemen down there. It's a reference to people who have died in the past and who are buried under the earth. They're not only people moving forward, but everybody who came before Jesus, that Jesus is the center of history. I know it's a debate today, and politically, I don't particularly care all that much, but I do think it's significant that in the Western world, the calendar revolves around the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, because this is the center of history. One of the things, and, and I'll get to this in just a second, one of the things that I know is true of all of you, for all of your differences, is true of me too, is that you're control freaks. If that you feel a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of frustration and, and anger at people when you feel like things are not going the way you want. And we often feel great anxiety at the vicissitudes of history, the ups and downs of history. Part of being a Christian is knowing that the great turning point in history already happened. The great rescue already happened. There is nothing coming in the next election. There is nothing coming in the living United States, still a nation, in 100 years or 500 years, that is all that significant connected to the anxiety. 
however the economy does in the next 10 years, whatever happens to us individually, the great turning point in history is already the great rescue, the great miracle is already happening. How many you notice that when you feel anxiety about what's going on in current events or in your life, what the narrative that's often underneath that implicitly is that the great event is still to come. Is that the great question mark is still to be answered? It's not. It's already the great center of history is that this dog took on human flesh and for us and for our salvation, he came down and didn't. This passage and every passage in the New Testament doesn't say, and he will be Lord one day, it says he already is. Since 30 AD, Jesus Christ has been the supreme ruler of the universe. The human Jesus is in charge of the universe. That is one of the many reasons Paul can sing when he's in jail, because he knows not Caesar, but Jesus is the one who's actually in charge. Now, because Jesus is not like Caesar, he's not like American presidents or any American or any human politician ruler, he rules the universe in a very different way than we do if we have power. But nonetheless, he is already human. Again, because Jesus is in the form of God and in the form of human beings, one of the things we should know is, as human beings, as Christians, is that when we look at Jesus, and this is like the category of revelation, it's something you can't look inside yourself can't look at your own experience. You can't look at the course of history and deduce this. But you can hear the gospel and know this, that when you look at Jesus, when you look at the story of Jesus, you're saying at least two things. Exactly what God did. When you see Jesus and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you are reading is exactly what God is like. There's a great line from one of the old archbishops of Canterbury, who's the highest position in Anglican Church, the Church of England, named Michael Ramsey, when he said this name, ripping off of that line in 1 John, in God there is um, light and there is no darkness at all. And, and he kind of changed that. And he said this, you think about it often, God is Christ-like, and in God there is no one Christ-like. That when we look at Jesus, we don't see kind of what God is like. We don't see what God is like some of the times, you see what God is like. And that's a star to hold on to in the darkest. But we not only now see what God is like, we also see what human beings are supposed to be like. When you look at the story of Jesus. When you are frustrated at what humans are doing in the world, and there is not a day when we are not frustrated with that. Ourselves and others, what we see in Jesus is what human beings are created to be, what they are supposed to be, and what we will one day be. There is so much reason not to despair not to be depressed, not to give up. And then finally, in the future, Paul knows that this is the figure who's coming back to set everything right. I would encourage you, when you feel the depression coming, when you feel the clouds hanging over, this is the star we need to know is there and to get our bearing from. And so when we think about perspective, holding on to perspective, when so much else in the world, so much else in our lives, and certain seasons hold apart, this is a passage to memorize. This is a passage to really know. This is more real than any interpretation of your experience you have ever had. Your interpretation of your experience, my interpretation of my experience, is constantly flawed, is constantly incomplete. We are constantly drawing deductions and feeling emotions that are profoundly unexpected to that. What we see with Paul is someone who is fixed on this reality and everything in his life flows out of it. So that's perspective. The second thing is that I'm going to be quick with this one. One of the great issues in our culture today, but probably throughout all human history, and, and here's our second keyword, is privilege. 
a lot of the debates that happen, a lot of the hostility and the anger in our culture, a lot of the culture war stuff that is going on is in one sense about privilege, about the fact that some people are doing well and some people are not, and further, that that is not simply these guys worked harder and these guys didn't, but that injustice and brokenness is at least a big part of that story. Now, I know I'm generalizing here, but I think this is true insofar as it goes, and, and I'm not giving any kind of blueprint for society. I'm not at all saying that this is an exhaustive take on our reality, but I would encourage you to at least consider this. I sense if I get older and as I listen to how people talk and I notice how people relate to each other and how they respond to, to their experience and to others, that there are probably two main scripts about privilege out there. One is to basically deny it. This is more maybe, if you want to put it this way, more the right-wing instinct, is to say either I have no privilege, I just earned everything I have, or um, to deny that privilege brings any obligation with it. They kind of deny that we are our brother's keeper. The other script is to respond to privilege with resentment. And they constantly be motivated primarily by the negative perception that there is injustice underneath the differences in the world, and they constantly be um, calling out and criticizing and resenting those who have privilege in different ways. And for now, I just want to point out something that those two postures have in common. They fundamentally look at people who are different than you, whether they have more privilege or less privilege, with a sneer, with contempt. Which is why our culture is dominated by people with sneers on their face. You ever see those old pictures, black and white pictures of like the Civil War? Sometimes I wonder if when future generations look at us, whether the thing they will notice on our faces, whether we're Democrats or Republicans, whether we're older dumb, is that we are a culture that sneers at each other constantly. We have so much contempt for one another. And I'm not even saying that that's never justified. But here's something we should know as Christians. Whatever the incarnation was, the person with the most privilege in the history of the universe, giving it up for the sake of others without privilege, it was not content. It was not a senior. And so I would just say this. Whether you are someone who has, on average, more privilege than others, or someone who has less privilege than others, and your perception are truly, I would say this, sneering at those who are different than you doesn't rhyme with the incarnation. doesn't rhyme story of Jesus. Now, on the other hand, you might say, well, that sounds like you're propping up the status quo there. Sounds like you're kind of siding with the conservative one. I would say this. What the gospel shows is that privilege is not to be resented. It's not to be denied that it is to be used entirely for the sake of others. The gospel is the story in one sense of Paul tells it in a slightly different way, an economical way in Second Corinthians. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? Even though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Privilege is always going to trip up every culture in different ways because there is injustice attached to it, and there is inevitability attached to it as well. If you uh, swept the ground clean, like year, and we all started from the starting blocks of the same spot, a year from now there would be profound diversity and outcome, some because of injustice. Some because it's humanly speaking, luck and coincidence. Some because some people are harder workers and other people are more lazy. There's so many explanations underneath it. But the one thing we always know about privilege is whatever gift you have been given, whatever grace you have experienced, Michael Goldstein puts it this way, is that God's people are always a so that people. No experience of privilege has ever come into your lap except that in God's intention, it has a comma so that after it. And that you would use it for others the way Jesus used it for you. 
And so we get a different, I think, take on what we do with privilege in the story of Jesus here. We give up our rights for the sake of others. We do not hold on to it. We do not grasp it. I often say this, some of you have heard me say this many times over the years, um, that I would encourage you, and this is profoundly countercultural to conservatives and liberals in our culture, do not carpe diem. Do not seize the day. Do not try to suck the marrow out of life. Don't try to drain and maximize everything you can get out of your experience of life between birth and death. Don't do the younger thing, you only live on. The privilege that you have been given is primarily civil. It is primarily civil. And that is not resentment, that is not self-denial. And you cannot serve others with the privilege you have been given with a sneer on your face. There is a great line, I'm going to mention Advent one more time, and O come all ye faithful, there's a great line that summed up Philippians 2, that when the moment of the incarnation comes and God decides in self-giving love not to hold on to his privilege, but to use it for the sake of others, there's this line in O come all ye faithful, lo, he does not abhor the virgin. He doesn't look at us and sneer at the God of He doesn't look at us and say, let them deal with it, uncomfortable as I am. He enters into it with his privilege, serving you. And that's a paradigm for us. Third one is this. I'm going to be really short on this one, but again, there's, there's so much we can say about always. What this tells us about power. Politics is all about power. I already mentioned, I think you're all control freaks. I am also a control freak, you know. And, and one thing that is so profoundly counterintuitive here, and I suspect that in many ways, for those of us who are Americans and American Christians, this is, I think, central to where our unbelief tends to lie. Our unbelief as Christians today doesn't tend to lie in. I don't think God can actually love me. I don't think God can actually forgive me. I don't think God actually has a good purpose for my life. It tends to come here, which is that this is the way to power. That this is the way God not only saves his people, but the strategy he uses to bring the kingdom of God in the world. There's a, an acronym that's been popular and increasingly popular in the last couple of years. It's often connected to housing and building new housing. It's often connected to how we respond to the homeless or the drug addicts or, or to any area of, of messiness in the world. And it's NIMBY, not in my backyard. And NIMBY is just another way of saying that human beings are that we have higher ideals for others than we choose to live up to ourselves. And I suspect that this is where our enemy is as Christians. I love the fact that Jesus did this. Jesus praised me for doing this. I love the fact that God brought his kingdom to this, but not in my backyard. I'm not doing this. This isn't how God works. It. God works with politicians. God works through us being able to control the culture. God works through me getting this, me getting this, me avoiding that. That we do the nimby thing all the time with the story. We look at it as an ideal, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. But we say in so many ways, day after day in our lives to God, not in my backyard, not here. Then somebody else, Mother Teresa wants to do this great, we'll read about what we praise her, everyone's off, but not in my backyard. But the reality is, is that this actually is the way God changes the world. Not just back then, but today. That as people deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus and sacrificially put the well-being of others in front of their own, that is the most powerful way God works in the world. You can make a ton of money in your job. You can have a ton of kids. You can marry somebody that you're crazy about. You can have all kinds of influence and power in our culture. And if you do not do this, you are 
If you do not do this, you are ineffective. If you do not do this, do not change the world for the better. This is how the kingdom of God works. Dust of the earth sits upon the throne of heaven. There is a scene in the Gospels that I often mention. I'm just going to mention it here briefly. Jesus is being crucified. And, and when we go to the crucifixion, the cross, we often immediately go to, he died for my sins, which is true. There's a lot more going on there than a transaction between a holy God and a sinful individual. So a lot of things going on there. And one of them is that as Jesus goes to the cross, he is by the guards, by the Roman centurions, the guys with actual power, you would think. A purple robe is put upon him, royalty, a crown of thorns. They beat him with a reed, and then they put it in his right hand like it's a scepter, and they bow down to him. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And the whole point of that is that they are doing it to mock Jesus. What the gospel writers want you to know is that that's actually what's going on in that moment. A human being is becoming the most powerful figure in the history of the world in this moment because this is how power works. It's still how power works today. It's not just true back then, it's still true today that the way up is the way down. If you want to be great, you have to become the last. If you want to be influential, you have to give yourselves up for the sake of others. It's the last thing, so much more we can talk about. But for the sake of time, is this, I think, maybe the biggest theme would be in overall, the most consistent theme, even more than joy, which is participation. And this is the main one. This is flowed right out of the NIMBY stuff. NIMBY is saying, thank you, Jesus, that you did this. Not in my backyard, not in my story. This isn't going to be the pattern of my story. Participation is the idea that in the story of Jesus, we not only see something that we respond to, spectators, but we see a pattern we're called the inverting story. It's point of me of this participation. It's at the beginning of the bulletin. I encourage you to read it later, but I want to read this statement from Soren Kierkegaard. And Soren Kierkegaard, I, I, I quote a lot. He was a guy who perceived himself to have the central calling to show Christians. And he lived in the 1800s in Denmark, where there's all these state churches in Europe. And if you're born in Denmark, you are born into the church and you are baptized into the church simply because you are Danish, which is often the case in European culture for, for many centuries. And Soren Kierkegaard perceived this great mission in life to be to show Christendom that they had forgotten Christ. To show Christendom that they had forgotten Christ and to bring Christ back into Christendom. And I would say that this is the central contrast that sums up Kierkegaard's work. He starts with a prayer. He says, Lord Jesus Christ, you did not come into the world to serve and thus not to be admired either. He points out in Christendom, Jesus gets admired. Jesus doesn't want to be admired. Or even in that sense, worship. Lord Jesus, you yourself were the way and the life. And you have asked only for not admirers, but imitators. If we have goes off into this infatuation, wake us up. Rescue us from this error of just wanting to admire or even adoringly admire you instead of wanting to follow you and be like you. The fundamental change that took place with the church triumphant and established Christendom is that ordinarily Christ now mostly requires admirers and not imitators. The great description was good. I admire it as an ideal, not in my backyard. His whole life on earth, from first to last, was designed to be able to only have imitators and designed to make admirers impossible. Christ came into the world with the purpose of saving the world, but also with purpose. And this second thing is in turn implicit in his first purpose of being the prototype of leaving footprints 
for the person who wanted to join him, who might then become an imitator. And I would encourage you to go back to that one later on. I just want to point out what he's saying. He said, Jesus saving us cannot be disconnected from us becoming people. There is no salvation in which we do not look like this at the end of the story. We cannot be saved away from this. We can only be saved by this and towards this. And then he said, but because the prototype has become an object of admiration, people sneak away from the requirement. Established Christendom is the place where someone in the strongest terms admires and even adoringly admires Christ, whereas his life expresses the very opposite of what Christ's life was as lived by earth on him. So there's the Nimiza. There's also, I think, what I often, as I get older, see in so much of the church today, which is theologically admiring this about God and then turning towards other resources for the way we involve this. Other resources politically, other resources economically, other resources relationally, and we take our cue in all those areas from something other than the story of Jesus. Because that's to be admired, find God in practice. Right, God in practice. We want to make an omelet, God breaks and eggs. Can't do this all the time. And this is what Kierkegaard is saying. He ends with this. In this manner, last couple of lines, established Christendom, I love this metaphor, established Christendom has become a collection of what could be called honorary Christians. In the same sense, we speak of honorary doctors who receive their degrees from institutions of higher learning without having studied or written or defended a doctoral dissertation, but they get brought up because they get a lot of money and they're famous and they're an honorary doctor. Then he says, there are no honorary Christians. Only the imitator of Christ is a Christian. The admirer really assumes a pagan relation to Christianity. And so this is something to participate in. This is something for us to enter into. And here is, uh, I'm going to end with this. Every single one of us, including me, here's that maybe, maybe on some level, many of you are like, you know what, I love this. Yes, the world would be such a better place if we did this. But I would just say, let's name out loud. Every single one of us feel profound fear towards actually moving away from NIMBY on this and actually entering into it. I just want to point out a paradox that C.S. Lewis often points out that you see in Jesus, which is the more you put your own desires at the center of the universe and you do the vain glory thing, you do the selfish ambition thing, it's amazing whether you're in your 20s or your 30s or your 60s or your 70s. One of the great, I think, signs of human foolishness, I do it every day of my life, is that we keep doing the same thing and expect to be miserable and we're unhappy and we're unsatisfied, and we're restless. If I do it again tomorrow well enough, maybe it will turn out different. The way of putting yourself at the center, it's not that you need to feel some ought, some obligation that you're not supposed to You need to see that's Putting yourself at the center, holding on to grasping, clinging to your privilege, and trying to drain it dry before the lights go off is the road to misery and unhappiness. If you say, this is beautiful, but I'm so scared of doing this, I would just say people who do this learn over time that there is joy, there is peace, that there is meaning. Again, we see this in Paul, we see it in Jesus, we see it in so many Christians around the ages. As we take up our cross and put the good of others in front of our own, it actually is the way to glory. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, summed up the gospel this way, and, and we'll come, continue to come back to this in the weeks to come with the Philippians. A lot of times, the gospel is summed up like this. You're a sinner, God loves you, and he died so that you could be forgiven, which is true. But notice that in that definition of the gospel, 
there's no sense of what you do now, which is why we so often fill in the blank with capitalism and socialism, Democrats, and Republicans, and unselfishness in the American dream, because that was passed, and now I got to figure out a way to manage. Here and they have summed up the gospel like this, and I want you to hear both sides. The Son of God became what we were supposed to be so that we might now become what he is. Son of God became what we were supposed to be 2,000 years ago so that we might become what he now is, which is why, again, let's end with this. I don't want you to just hear verses 6 to 11 and admire it. Wait to hear verses 6 to 11 and then go back to verse 5. Let this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, let this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, be yours. This is the central mission of the church that by God's grace and for his glory and for the good of us, that we would rhyme with this. And so let's pray that we would enter into this joy and participate in it.